You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This week, I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. The race is well underway to monitor the spread of the coronavirus, but governments and health officials alike have yielded little data so far. Best-selling author Michael Lewis, you know him from Moneyball, The Big Short, The Blind Side, and Liar's Poker, he tracked down a Wall Street risk veteran who might have unlocked a way to track the outbreak. Michael gave us the details. Uh, so, so, so his name is Peter Hancock, and Peter Hancock has um, he had a very bright idea. He saw uh, this letter that two leading uh, British ENT specialists published uh, a few days ago. Uh, explaining just how how prevalent this odd symptom was with the coronavirus, and it was a symptom of lo- loss of sense of smell, and it's really dramatic. I mean, it's like you don't just sort of lose your sense of smell; like you wake up one day and you can't smell an onion, and um, and they're saying they're seeing it, you know, in in just a shocking number of the cases. And they've done some work with other doctors around the world. They're working on a paper that they're about to publish, I think, in the Journal of American Medicine, where they're trying to figure out, you know, what percentage of these people who've got coronavirus also lose their sense of smell. And it's somewhere between 30 and 60 percent. And they've estimated that, like, 80 percent of the people who lose their sense of smell right now probably have the virus. So it suggests two things. And they suggested two things to Peter Hancock. One was... You can use this as a very crude self-diagnostic tool that if, if that's all that happens to you, isolate. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a symptom that happens to kind of be a leading symptom, too, and a symptom that occurs um, when no other symptoms occur. Uh, but the second thing was he said, my God, we can harvest this as data. If we get enough people self-reporting um, that they've lost their sense of smell, it might, it might give us a map of where the virus is, but, but that we can't get now because we don't have the testing kits. Um, and so it was a really interesting idea. And the thing that impressed me so much is I talked to him the last couple of days to write this little piece that I published today on Bloomberg, but he got on to the British doctors. He himself is English. Uh, um, the day they published their letter, but five or six days ago, and in five or six days he's built this organization complete with data scientists and a website and and celebrities who are going to encourage people to report their sense of smell. I think it actually offers a real, I mean, it's crude, but better than anything we got, sense of like, 
where this thing is. Uh, and you can't really fight it unless you know where it is. Right. And of course, he's doing this as we try to search for some kind of medical uh, solution to figure out who is sick or who perhaps has immunity to coronavirus. What's interesting, too, is that he's looking for people to help him crowdsource this. I mean, he's looking for influencers to try to get the word out. Do you have any indication whether uh, how much traction this has gotten? Well, just judging from the response to the piece, it's going to get a lot of traction. Uh, and, I mean, he's just, he's just created the website yesterday. So, I mean, this all happened in the last five or six days. Um, smart people seem to think this is, including the British ENT specialists, uh, this is actually a really good idea. Um, so, absent, so it's like a situation where absent the test. I mean, if we had widespread, kind of universal, cheap testing, you wouldn't need this. But his point is even more interesting than this. That, look, in the United States, in a month, maybe we'll all have widespread testing. But, but what's going to happen in India with 1.3 billion people? Are they ever going to have this sort of testing? So it may be a really – the point is it's cheap. It's like a free diagnostic tool, uh, a free way to get a population kind of wide map of, of the disease. And, and the, the couple things are really important here. One is that because it's an early symptom – you, and because it's often just a lone symptom, you get it with people who are otherwise asymptomatic, who are exactly the kind of people who are going to be walking around otherwise infecting people. And right now, he points out, rightly, who's getting the test? The people who are getting the test are the people who are showing up really sick at, at you know, triage tents outside of hospitals. And, and those people already are going to be isolating. The people who are really tr dangerous right now, the people who don't know they have it. And this is a way to identify yeah. that you might have it. So I think, you know, it's, it's a little, he's, as I say, this is all being done on the fly, but he has a lot of very credible people, I think including the World Health Organization, uh, on board. And uh, so I have every... You know, I think it's every possibility that this thing could could move very quickly. Um, so yeah. So Michael, I, 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 Michael, I want to get I want to get your I want to get your thoughts here on on some of the government response uh, to the uh, COVID nineteen crisis, uh, uh, particularly here in the United States. This idea that we had this sort of black swan event, this idea that maybe that black swan wasn't uh, as black as maybe some of people thought it was. This idea that maybe we underestimated, uh, you know, the likelihood of of what really was out there and what we really saw coming. When you look at the government response and you look at the way that we're now scrambling uh, to sort of protect ourselves and protect our healthcare workers, what lessons do you think that we might be able to draw from this so that uh, if we are confronted, uh, God forbid, with something like this again, we'll be a little bit better prepared? Well, um, there are a whole bunch of them. One is leadership really matters. Uh, I mean, that, that we had a response kind of playbook it was there on the shelf three or four years ago because the Obama administration had had a scare and um, the Trump administration had no interest in it. They basically threw it in the garbage can when they came in and they demoted the, um, the people who were the pandemic response people in the National Security Council who would have been really important in all this had they existed because what you needed and what you know anybody but the Obama people figured out uh, was you need some person in the White House who coordinates the response right away, early, because you've got various agencies trying to do 
various things and making various claims. In this case, the CDC claiming it had a test that, that in the end it didn't have, that didn't work. They would have caught that. They'd have caught that really early. So, you know, I think the yeah. moving forward, the big thing is we are paying a huge price for the demonization of the federal government that's gone on for decades. And mm. it's, it's, um, yeah. we have had the unhappy accident of having someone as president who actually had very little respect for it when he took charge of it. And it really is the principal tool for dealing with this sort of event. Right. And it's not a black swan event. They, there were tabletop exercises that, exercise that were presented to the Trump administration sure. that they weren't particularly interested in uh, about just okay, this. I want you to, I want you to uh, expand on that thought, though, Michael, because, I mean, in, your, in the last book that you wrote, I mean, you wrote The Fifth Risk. Uh, and I mean, you talk about this idea of populism or what passes for populism and some of the dangers, uh, I guess, that could come out of sort of voting for people uh, who have a very distinct and very deliberate uh, disregard for some of our government institutions. Do you think that the the crisis that we're in now could be sort of that catalyst that maybe gets us as a people to sort of rethink uh, how we value government? Or is this going to be one of those events where maybe people double down on this idea that we shouldn't trust the government? It's a funny question, right? Because people did, did generally just want to reinforce their own beliefs, and it's very hard to change minds. But I think a young person looking at this thing now whose mind is not hardened in any particular way is going to emerge saying, why didn't the government do a better job? The government is the thing that needs, it's the tool that needs to be the good tool, the, 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 the working tool. It's the only tool. So I do think that the, the general takeaway the society will have to this event is that we need the things we want government do, to do to do, be done well. Uh, you can argue about what you want government to do or not do, but dealing with a pandemic is hard to argue about that. It really is naturally a, it's, it's a, it's a naturally centralized problem. Uh, distributing equipment, managing the, 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 the nationwide response so you don't have some places where people are eating in restaurants and other places where people are holed up in their house living in terror. I mean, it's, it's, it's a naturally a centralized government function. You don't hear the Heritage Foundation right. right now coming out saying we shouldn't have the federal government involved in this. And, and they're not doing it because they know nobody would believe it. So I do think that here you have a little metaphor for a little example of what happens when you, when you, are, when you take this hostile attitude towards your own federal government. Michael, we know the president is leaning hard on the private sector and relying on state governors uh, to come up with solutions. They're, people like Andrew Cuomo are really driving the response effort. Do you think the White House could simply step out of the way to let companies and states get us back on track? Is that something that you envision happening? Well, it, that was one thing. Trump sort of suggested in the beginning, sort of not my problem. He's let these governors go and compete with each other for equipment and stuff and, and resources for their health care workers. It's, that's madness. Um, so, do, you know, get out of the way. Get out of the way of, uh, of what? I mean, you, you need a coordinated response to this sort of thing. I mean, let, let's, let's change the example. Uh, let's say that we were attacked by Russia. What if, how would you feel if the president said, I'm going to get out of the way of this and let private companies and governors deal with it? You know, it's like there are, there are basic functions that the federal government will do better than everybody that is necessarily centralized. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. and, and th this, is, this is one of them.
uh, get out of the way of the money supply. Let the governors issue their own currency. You know, it's it's um, it isn't uh, it's an abdication of responsibility. But you know, the happy news is, though that was seemed to be Trump's first step, and it seemed to be made more out of ignorance than anything else. It's not a second step. He doesn't seem to be saying now the federal government has no role in this. Uh, so it's just a question of how quickly right. they can get competent in, in an area where they had no competency. Economists are searching for answers to what lies ahead in the next six to 12 months. So developing an economic forecast has become a Herculean task. In its latest outlook, PIMCO expects the global economy to transition from near-term pain to gradual healing, but not without the risk of an uneven recovery. We discussed this with the firm's global economic advisor, Jakob Fels. So, as you say, there's really no precedent for what we are seeing here for this recession. There's, so that means there's no good playbook for how this will develop. I think the first thing I'd say is this is the first ever recession by government order, right? And um, it's very severe because we're shutting down important parts of the economy to fight the virus. Um, but it's not only very severe, but it could also be potentially very short. And there are two reasons for that. The first one is going into this, we did not in most countries around the world, including the U.S., we did not see major economic imbalances that would have required a recession. Um, so that's the first thing. So once we lift the lockdowns, once the virus curve has been flattened sufficiently, we can gradually go back to normal. And then the second reason why this is a very severe recession, but potentially short, is that we've seen a staggering speed and size of the policy response, both fiscal and monetary policy. So if you take this together, this is why our outlook is for a global economy that will very soon start to transition from hurting to healing. So if you want to talk uh, letters, we think this is going to be a U-shaped economic recovery. At the moment, we're still in the I phase where everything is falling off a cliff. That's what the economic indicators are showing. But I think soon we will enter into yeah. the L phase in the U where things start to bottom, activity mm -hmm. starts to bottom. And we're actually seeing this out of China right now, which uh, got into this earlier and is getting out of this earlier. And then eventually, once the uh, stimulus me measures take hold and once the lockdowns will be gradually lifted, you will go into the upward bend in the U, and that will happen at some stage during the second half of this year. So, yeah, it's very deep, but I think we're transitioning from hurting to healing. Okay, I like the way you put that, transitioning from hurting to healing. And the U-shaped recovery certainly uh, gives us reason to be optimistic. But what will be the biggest factor driving whether this is a U-shaped recovery or something more along the lines of a Nike swoosh, where you go down and then it takes a long time to, to go back up again? Yeah, Scarlett. So I think what, what we are watching are two things. It's actually two curves, uh, uh, if, if, if you will. The first curve, obviously, is the virus curve. So the big question mark still is whether the lockdown of the economy um, will be sufficient, whether it's, it will be sufficient to, to really flatten the virus curve sufficiently. I mean, China was ahead of the curve on this. South Korea was ahead of the curve on this. They really managed to uh, uh, flatten that curve very aggressively. We'll have to see whether a similar thing will start to happen in Europe and here in the U.S., 
if not, the lockdown will have to uh, will have to uh, be in place for longer. So that that's the first curve to watch. The second curve is the default curve in the corporate sector. I mean, even before this crisis, we've been worrying for some time about potential cracks in the corporate credit cycle in the U.S. Put differently, we're seeing important parts of the corporate sector, the more cyclical parts, being highly leveraged, um, very risky. So the question is, how many corporate defaults are we going to see during this recession? So this is something that could actually prolong the L phase um, uh, uh, in this in, in, in this recession and and recovery. So so these are the two curves: the virus curve um, and the default right. curve. I think these are the two key uncertainties that we and everybody else should be watching. All right. So, Jakob, talk to us a little about about what types of changes, though, we could potentially see in this economy. You know, when we came out of the global financial crisis, there were some massive structural changes, not only in our economy, but in our political systems that were completely tethered to not only what happened in the crisis, but how we responded to the crisis. This idea here that once we do sort of start to have a recovery, you have households that probably aren't going to be made whole, uh, even with the stimulus packages out there. You're going to have people who are are allowed to leave their homes, but are still going to be afraid uh, to go into public places where there's a lot of people. Do you see major structural shifts in uh, how people like me and you, I guess, go about our business once we do get to that recovery stage? Yeah, Romain, I think there will be some lasting scars um, that this <clears throat> that this episode will leave. So I, th I think the most important one is probably individual saving behavior. Um, I mean, a lot of people will have experienced a shortfall in income, um, see job, see, see, seeing their jobs lost uh, in this recession, even if it's only a short one. So I think over time you'll find that people will want to hold more precautionary savings, um, and probably they will want to hold more of these in relatively liquid assets, so they can liquidate them when you know the next shock hits, the next crisis hits. So maybe people will hold more money in cash or, or, or near cash assets and in bonds. Um, I also think that in the corporate sector, you will see important changes. So leverage, average leverage on corporate balance sheets will probably go down because many companies are now experiencing that this is a problem. They have difficulties in rolling over uh, that debt. So I think you'll see more precautionary savings both on household balance sheets and on the corporate balance sheet. And what this means is that the private sector saving glut, which had already been pretty intense, will increase even further. And that is something that is likely to offset the public sector dissaving the higher deficits we are seeing. And so I think one lasting consequence of this crisis will be that we will move to an even lower, a world of even lower interest rates. Call it the new neutral 2.0. So we'll have even lower interest rates, yet companies and individuals will be saving as much as they can for a rainy day, for any kind of emergency. Where will they put all those assets, Yakum? Well, I think um, a larger part, as I said earlier, I think will go into somewhat more liquid um, assets. So I think people will want to hold higher cash balances or, near ca or, or, or substitutes for cash so say short-dated bonds. Um, there may also be more saving in the form of home equity. So I think um, homes are still 
relatively viewed as a relatively safe asset. Home prices are much less volatile than the prices of other risky assets. So I think what you'll see is people will also try to build more equity in their homes, which is another way of saying they will be more reluctant to take on mortgage debt or they will try to pay down mortgage debt faster. Um, that's another way of building precautionary savings. So, Joachim, at the start of this, you talked about this idea of having a little bit or the potential for a little bit of an uneven uh, recovery here around the world. Talk about for a second the dollar and put this in context for us, because we've obviously seen some distortions, a little bit of a, a dollar strength that probably has less to do with uh, people betting on the U.S. and more to do with a lot of other uh, funding issues going on around the globe. Do we start to see a little bit more balance in the FX market between the U.S. dollar and the rest of the world? Or are we just going to have to get comfortable with this idea of outperformance of the dollar? Well, I think you saw the very typical response um, of FX markets to a crisis like this. Uh, demand for dollars increased very significantly. The dollar is still the most important currency in global transactions and in reserves. Um, there was a shortage of dollars in the system. Um, uh, companies were drawing credit lines. And uh, so that pushed up the dollar, which is the usual move you get in a crisis like this. However, in the meantime, I think we've seen very important responses from the Fed and other central banks. So as you know, the Fed uh, reactivated many of those FX swap lines uh, that uh, they introduced in the last crisis in 2008-2009. So those were reactivated, which meant which means that uh, uh, the central banks, who are the counterparties, can offer dollars um, in their domestic markets to their financial institutions. And then the latest step uh, yesterday, or actually two days ago, was that the Fed is now allowing uh, foreign central banks that hold treasuries with the New York Fed to repo those um, and obtain dollars. So basically, the Fed is opening up the floodgates, is uh, giving the global markets, global financial institutions and corporates, the dollars that they need. And I think that probably means that we are at or at least close to the peak for the U.S. dollar. Uh, we've seen some currencies uh, depreciating very rapidly, very far, um, uh, particularly in emerging markets. And we may now have seen the worst of those depreciations. And my expectation would be that the dollar... Um, will not appreciate further, but will rather, you know, start yeah. to depreciate. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. The coronavirus shock is likely to have lasting implications on the geopolitical landscape. We asked Ian Bremmer, president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media, about how populism and nationalism play into the complications that arise. Well, it didn't cause the crisis in any way. Uh, I mean, that, that, that has much more to do with the fact that a middle-income country, China, with poor control over its data and an authoritarian system, 
um, is increasingly large, second largest economy in the world, and very integrated with our supply chain. So that's going to create lower quality global growth and much greater risks, including things like pandemics, right? When SARS hit, they were 4% of the global economy. Today, they're 17. So that, that's the real driver. But the response function, the ability of governments to have a rally around the flag effect for their leaders, I mean, there's no question populism got you that. I mean, after 9-11, before the populist uh, surge hit, um, the rally around the flag effect for President Bush, who was certainly not popular beforehand, was 92%. Today, President Trump's approval ratings, much bigger crisis, 46, half of what Bush's was. And, and, and you see that kind of problem not only inside democracies around the world, but also in terms of the lack of coordination and alignment between democracies around the world. It's a big problem. Right. It is a big problem, and I'm, I'm curious by when you talk about res response function, how China has responded to the crisis. It's months ahead of uh, compared to the rest of the world, and for the most part, it has the virus under control and is reopening its economy. It's also exporting critical medical supplies to other countries, essentially peddling soft power. This is a pretty transparent effort, but Ian, will it work? And who is China trying to influence the most here? Uh, of course it's going to work because countries are desperate. Uh, they really need this support, and they're not getting it from anyone else, right? I mean, the United States is not providing global leadership on this issue. Um, but let's also keep in mind that the Chinese are the reason uh, for this crisis to begin with. The original sin was that the Chinese covered up uh, the original human-to-human -human transmission, uh, lied about it to the World Health Organization, and refused to allow the U.S. CDC in. Uh, while 5 million Chinese were traveling business as usual from Wuhan across the country and around the world. Having said all of that, you're right. The Chinese economy, once they took this seriously, um, they, they used uh, their surveillance society uh, to crack down on, on it, uh, to stop any, you know, shelter everyone truly in place. And, and there, there was, that, that meant that people actually really did listen or else. And, you know, now we're looking at May when the American and European economies will be shut, and the Chinese economy will probably be at full functionality by then, and certainly on the supply side. Uh, and so that, that, together with the fact that the Chinese are taking advantage um, of, of their ability um, to, uh, to, to, to provide support, given what's otherwise a geopolitical vacuum, is clearly going to turn a lot of um, political orientations of many countries, including American allies, more towards Beijing. So then what's the outcome of that, Ian? I mean, what can we expect then the world to sort of look like once that starts to transpire? Well, uh, if the Americans are saying you can't use Huawei or Chinese 5G, um, a lot of European countries and others that have benefited from Chinese largesse will be more interested in telling the Americans to go scratch. Um, the United States will be engaged in more decoupling, not just on tech, but also bringing jobs back to the United States and reducing their Chinese footprint, in terms, certainly in terms of essential medical equipment, but more broadly in manufacturing and services. I don't expect that to happen nearly as much from other countries. So I think you're going to have more interdependence between much of the rest of the world and the Chinese and less between the U.S. and China. And that's important not only because it reduces the resilience um, in the U.S.-Chinese relationship, but it also makes it plausible 
that you end up in a Cold War directly between the two countries, especially because, you know, President Trump, who was saying Chinese virus now isn't now that he talked to President Xi, but his approval ratings are good right now. When, when they turn down in an election cycle and people are blaming him and saying it's because you failed to respond adequately, you failed to get a you know, sort of nationwide lockdown in place, he's much more likely to blame the Chinese directly. Um, and and I, I think that that has the potential to be incredibly disruptive geopolitically and, of course, economically. Ian, does that change if we get a new president in November? Um, sure, it changes insofar as another president would be more interested in reasserting U.S.-led multilateralism, having better alignment with traditional U.S. allies, and probably doing less finger-pointing, having just beaten Trump at the elections, right? Blame Trump as opposed to blame the Chinese. But I want to be clear— the reasons for the deterioration in the U.S.-China relationship are largely structural, and they have less to do with Trump. We were heading to a technology cold war well before Trump became president. And indeed, one of the only foreign policies that Trump had that was broadly supported in a bipartisan way was a harder line on China. And the fact that we're now facing the worst crisis since World War II and the original sin for that crisis came out of Beijing, not yeah. out of the United States, irrespective of how badly it was mishandled in the U.S. Those are serious, serious points that will outlast the 2020 election. So I'm curious, then, Ian, do, do we get a situation, though, where other countries, meaning not, not the U.S., not China, they start picking sides, whether to sort of align themselves with the U.S. or go with uh, what a lot of people still see as a, a rapidly growing economy in China? Again, more so I think you do. And it's not because China can replace the United States effectively. It doesn't have the military power, certainly not outside Asia, um, and it doesn't have as much soft power as the United States does. But the gap is closing, and the fact that the United States – I mean, you, very strong U.S. fiscal response, very strong domestic monetary response, but no international response at all. And one thing I would point out to you is last week – when Trump decided in a press conference to shut down travel from Europe to the U.S. for non-citizens and non-permanent representatives, he didn't tell the allies in advance. They heard about it on television. And the next day, the European Union condemned President Trump. Imagine, in the worst crisis we've experienced since World War II, America's top allies condemning the Americans? Unthinkable after 2008. Unthinkable after 9-11. And yet it's happening now, and it's happening while President Xi Jinping in China absolutely sees a cheap opportunity. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.